Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Don Fifield of The Guardian. A football club, a city, a global community are in mourning. A stadium is a shrine, a field of flowers. Kuhn Vishai, to give him his formal title, made dreams come true. His investment in Leicester was emotional, not just financial. He understood the bonds between fans and team, club and community. It takes tragedy to reaffirm reality. Football is frivolous but a powerful point of reference. One shirt left by a Wolves fan said it all. Divided by colours, united by grief. Now, Johnny, you were at the King Power on Saturday night. You've been back since. Mm -hmm. You live in the city. You wrote a definitive book on the title win. Give us an idea of what your city and our game have lost. Yeah, this, this cuts very deep, first of all, in the, in, in the city of Leicester, Mike. Um, I was at the stadium this morning, in fact, I was there yesterday, to see the, the, the tributes and the flowers which have grown from one or two bouquets to just a huge sort of sea of, of flowers and bouquets outside, turnstiles 52 and 53. Um, people crying, people stunned, very kind of sombre mood, very poignant because the last time there was anything like this um, on a non-match day, that kind of gathering, you know, you've got Rodykes Road full of cars, you've got people just coming to an empty stadium. It was when they won the title uh, a couple of years ago. There's a real poignant counterpoint to that. Um, and I think that's the support as grief, but it goes beyond that. Leicester's a small city, it's a one-club city. Um, he was a very generous man, not just within the football club, but to the community. He, he, he gave to the local university, to the local hospital. He supported other local causes. Um, there, there are a lot of small-scale stories that haven't been publicised of sort of personal kindness. Um, so he's someone that made an impact on the whole community. And, and you know, just going around daily life, uh, I was at a children's party yesterday. The mums are all talking about this. You know, in the supermarket, it's what people were talking about at the checkouts. Um, it's it's really affecting everyone. Um, everyone knows someone that was at the game. You know, as I say, it's a small place. Uh, and, and Leicester's not actually... It's a low-key kind of city. It's a restrained sort of city. And this sort of outpouring of grief is quite unusual in the community. And, and I think it'll be quite some time before uh, people get over this. Mm. You went to report on a football match on mm. Saturday night. 
And that football match was immediately put into context. Can you give us an, an insight into what happens mm. when a disaster literally happens 100 yards away? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it, it's not like anything I've thankfully had to report on before, but we were all at the end of Claude Puel's press conference um, as, a, as a sort of live reporter, you're, you're at that point doing your rewrite of your match reports and maybe filing a quotes piece, which is what we were all starting to do. And it was actually the photographers um, at the game had kind of left on mass and all gone up to the press car park, which is on sort of elevated ground, looking back down onto the, the, the King Power Stadium. And texts and calls started coming through from the photographers who were pretty much all at that point packing stuff up in their cars. And they'd seen the helicopter gone down. Um, and the minute you heard the message, the helicopter's down, you, you knew what it was. We all came running out of the, the stadium, went sort of round the, the main stand to the south stand, and you could see in the in, in the, the far off corner just a, a kind of fireball, um, which is where the helicopter was, emergency services rushing to it and trying to clear the area of people. And it just becomes very surreal. Um, at that, you know, at that point, there's a lot of hearsay on social media. People are speculating straight away. But as a reporter, you really need to be absolutely sure, particularly in something like this, of, of, of the facts. Um, we all went back to the stadium, to the to the, the press room, and I have to say that the way Leicester City dealt with the situation was was quite incredible, given what he meant to every member of staff there as well. You know, people were personally grieving, but but as us press trying to trying to help us as much as possible. They reopened the press room, they they brought in sandwiches, teas and coffees, um, and tried to just update us and give us as much as we could. And we were there till well it was one AM, it was really two AM because the clocks went back and, and there was nobody sort of, you know, asking you to leave, kick you out. Um it it, it was, you know, in, in an hour of real difficulty and grief, they, they they thought of others and they were really generous as a football club. And I have to say, I think that comes from the culture that, that Kunvichai fostered. Mm. You, you, we go around the Premier League. You know, Leicester always had a reputation of being a really welcoming club. Mm. I think what struck me also was the... You know, the the sort of visceral reaction of, of some of the players. You know, you had Kasper Schmeichel yeah. in tears running out into the car park. You know, we live in an age where, you know, players are, are portrayed as quite distant figures, mm. but you didn't get that at, at Leicester. No, um, it's one of the ways in which they as a club are different and one of the ways I think his chairmanship, his ownership was, was different. Um, he described himself as the father of the club and he, he tried to embody that and had a kind of paternal relationship with, with players. So someone like Casper, who, who the longest serving member of the, the first team squad, um, has had a relationship with him going back seven or eight years. Um, Vishai, for example, when, there was a time when Casper was on holiday, he was asked to come back and, and film an advert for the club. And Vishai laid on his helicopter to, to get him there and get him back to his family as quickly as possible. Um, when, you know, everyone knows the story of them buying buying the cars when they won the title. But that's just a small kind of representation of, of, of the relationship they had. Um, they, they, they looked after the players, they took them to, to parties, they, they rewarded them with, with meals. It might sound trite, but I think we're in an age for top footballers, or football generally, where I know people are searching for, for meaning, for, for fun a little bit. There's so much money in the game, it's such a distant machine at sometimes. Uh, it feels like football. Um, and you can you can see, you know, in man managers like Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp, 
and top managers fo try and foster a kind of family feeling among their squad because footballers are searching for a bit of meaning, I think. Uh, it's, you know, people want to have fun and feel like they're playing for something more than just the business. And that happened quite organically at Leicester because of the way Vichai ran the club. They felt they were playing for a family. Um, they felt they were playing for each other. We saw that in the title season. And that did come from this, this, this way the, the club culture was, was set from, from Vichai. Mm. You know, we talk about supporter engagement and involvement of the community, Dom. Um, there's a question here from one of the, the, the listeners, Ian Taylor. Surely he's got to be remembered as the best owner to ever own a football club. Everything you want and more from free beers to free donuts on his birthday. <laughs> well, yeah, I, th I think he probably will be remembered as, as one of the best as ever been. Um, the little touches, like the beers um, and donuts, <laughs> were, were, were nice touches. But it did again, it harnessed that that feeling of, of everybody belonging together and in, in, in a sort of family atmosphere. Um, I, I was more moved, really, by the the money he's ploughed into the, the hospitals. The, I think he gave £2 million pounds yeah. to, towards a £10 million pound hospital uh, for children in Leicester. Um, I think there was there was money put through to the Leicester City Foundation. He just pledged a million pounds at an end-of-season yeah, award ceremony. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, just little things like that make a massive, massive difference to the community. And owning a football club, he, 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 he got it. He actually understood that he, when he was buying Leicester City, he wasn't just buying a money-making ent ent entity on, a, on the other side of the world. He, had, he wanted to feel as if he was part of that community and the football club is, is core to the community. And he, he engaged with that and, and everything he, he and Leicester City achieved, well, it is a fairy tale, for, even for, for supporters of other clubs as well, mm -hmm. to look at him now. He, he allowed supporters of clubs of Leicester City size which, let's face it, that's pretty much every club outside the top six in the Premier League, yeah. to dream that they can achieve something as remarkable as Leicester City did in 2016. Mm. I mean, I mean one, one thing I saw down, down at the, the memorial was shirts from, from other football clubs. It was Sheffield United shirt, Barnsley shirt, Aston Villa shirt, Celtic shirt, um, you know, Arsenal, Manchester United, lots of rugby shirts. Now, Leicester's a city, they always say divided by codes rather than by by clubs. You know, there's always been a rivalry between the, the rugby and the football team. A lot of rugby shirts down there yesterday. Um, and I think you've got to remember, he took over at a time when foreign ownership was had a bad name. You know, I think the Venkis family were making a mess of Blackburn. He took over from Milan Mandrich, who wasn't particularly popular with supporters. Um, and there was a wonderment, you know, who is this guy? Is this going to be another foreign owner who doesn't get it? And as Dom said, he, he really actually did get it. And I think to, I think what the respect from fans of other clubs represents is, is people just looking at Leicester and thinking, yeah, we wouldn't mind a bit of that. Um, he's a guy that seemed to have fun as well while he was being owner. Um, I've heard other chairmen say, speak admiringly about, yeah, you know, that's what we have to aspire to as well. You know, we talk about legacy in, in, in times like this, don't we, Don? Is, is part of the legacy going to be that it just doesn't have to be this way? It doesn't have to have um, you know, a, a culture in which owners, quite frankly, are billionaire parasites. Yeah, yeah and you'd like to think that that's what we learn from Leicester City uh, under, uh, under his stewardship. 
Um, there, there are tangible legacies. I mean, they got planning permission last week yeah. on a 100 million pound new training complex, which will presumably go ahead. And and you know, Leicester City as a club are virtually unrecognisable from the, the the club that he bought, which was you know, as you say, virtually yeah. a shell. Yeah. Um, expansion of the stadium. But you're right, it's a philosophy. I mean, you'd like to think that that owners coming into the Premier League, and there will always be new billionaire owners appearing on the scene because of the amount of money floating around the English game, will look at what he achieved and the way he did it and the affection in which he's held and think this is actually the way to own and run a football club in this country. Mm. I suppose, sadly... You know, things will revert to type to a degree. But, you know, there was a sense of not just the city coming together, but football coming together at, at Leicester. You know, the, you know, the images of little children being, you know, holding their dad's hand going down there and all that. Um, we live in an age, a very harsh age of, of tribalism, which is usually expressed quite mm. harshly and abusively through social media. Again, is that another wake-up call that it doesn't have to be like that? I think so. I, I, I think there's a nasty edge to, but certainly the, the fandom that you see on social media. Um, there's a there's a tribal edge, as you say, that that it's always been there. But I think I think the modern world nurtures that kind of thing. Um, and you know, two years ago we were taking pleasure in, in Leicester City's title win, and, and I felt since then maybe we were starting to revert to type again. Football is becoming and you know we're talking romantically about what they've done but there's there's a harsh reality which is that the big clubs are getting bigger mm -hmm. it's getting harder and harder for for teams to ever do what Leicester did again but it's only two years ago and and this gives us another chance to to think again about about what happened I mean this the squad that won the title cost 20 mil 21 million pounds you know it was it was built through the bonds that spoken about it was built through good recruitment it was built through a culture and there is another way there is another way for clubs to to to, to be run um as we sort of said you know sat claudio ranieri and craig shakespeare this you know like any other owner he had to make hard decisions so we can't say that he was a soppy romantic he was a he's a very clever businessman you know a decisive figure but that's part of football as well i i just think we we have got a chance to to, to look at, at this Leicester story again and just just think you know football should be about romance. Mm. Well, we should cherish that, but again, the reality of it, Dom. Sort of moving on to onto football issues to a degree. On a broader level, it seems even this season that the top five or top six, depending on however you want to look at it, are getting stronger. The rich are getting richer. Where are we going with that? One way at the moment. I mean, this feels as if you're right. It's that is in in some ways a reaction to what Leicester City did. Yeah. It was the wake up call for the for the elite clubs because they they underachieved badly and allowed you know the pretenders mm. to uh, to take their take the crown. Um, but they have reacted in a in a staggering way. I mean, City leading the way, obviously with with Pep, but but you could argue the same with Chelsea. Um, the, the level of Investment that they've that they've lavished, and they've I and mean, they've taken they've taken Leicester City's yeah, prize assets. Mangala Kante. Yeah, look at Mahrez on the City. bench. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is a worry that you get you know players who are capable of winning a title at Leicester suddenly sitting on the bench and, and not 
and only mm. contributing cameos here and there. Because football moves so fast, doesn't it? Yeah. If you look at that title-winning team, you've only got two players left in the team, haven't you? Yeah, you have, yeah. I mean, it, it really... And, and Schmeichel and Vardy. And Vardy was, was, sub, was a substitute at the weekend. You know, he... he, he May have quite a long sort of you know downslope, but maybe maybe he's on it already. I mean, Leicester had to fight Manchester United to keep hold of Harry Maguire in the summer. You know, as Dom said, their, their assets are being sort of targeted by by bigger clubs as well. But that said, they they managed to keep him. They managed to keep him, yeah. and and there is a level of resistance that the other clubs can muster now because of the finances involved in the game and even finishing mid-table or lower mid-table, you're still able to, to spend big on, on, on wages and, and retain these players for a certain length of time. Um, I, I've been surprised this season at how few shocks there have been with the top elite clubs. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, I think... It's time for the for the for the lower rank, the middling clubs. They, they can raise their games. They maybe just need it. Just needs an occasion. Maybe somebody slightly playing off the off off the their the top form. I mean, we saw it yesterday. I was at Sellers yesterday. Palace haven't scored there this season, but they made Arsenal look very average, um, apart from the six minute spell in the second half. So it maybe little games like that, little little reminders that you know the also rans can compete with them, and we'll we'll see more sort of shocks, but. It has been a worrying trend to date this season. Yeah, because the numbers do stack up, don't they, John? Mm. If you look at Liverpool, mm. you know, they've had a terrific start. But if you look at Cardiff on Saturday, they were able to rotate. Yeah. And you then looked at the strength in depth in the squad, which is what the biggest clubs can buy. You've got someone like Shakiri coming in for, was it 13 million? Yeah. And being, you know, an invigorating presence. Yeah, you've, you know, you've got Liverpool taking them apart. You've got um, Chelsea going to Burnley without Aiden Hazard and, and hammering them. You know, Burnley, difficult place to go, but not, not for them. If you look at Liverpool, City and Chelsea, I think you're seeing, you're seeing defensive numbers that we'd associate with, I don't know, Mourinho's Chelsea in 2005. But you're seeing attacking numbers that you almost... I think about the 1920s or something, scoring 100 <laughs> goals of the season. It's, it's, but that tells you, you know, you know, we're getting goal differences of plus 70 now when teams win the title. I know City, you know, maybe City are beyond the level we're talking about anyway, but there, there is a polarisation because the smaller clubs are actually, you know, as Don said, they're paying higher wages. They're actually spending more money on players than ever before, and yet the gap's still growing. And that's growing, as you said. If you take Liverpool as an example, you know, that front three has scored 18 goals, I think, so far. You've got Shakiri to back it up. Are Liverpool now working themselves into a position, a position where they are viable potential champions? Well, yeah, they are viable potential champions and there'd be certainties if Manchester City and Pep Guardiola weren't in the, <laughs> in the division. Um, I still think that they'll fall short of City's levels, but... That said, they've made massive strides. We, all, we, we know that's through the investment, that's through the, the recruitment and the, and the management of Jurgen Klopp. Um, it started with Virgil van Dijk, Alisson coming in, made a massive difference in the summer. Um, but you're right, the squad depth, having a Shakiri who you can just throw in and, and, and take some of the pressure off um, um, Sadio Mane or Roberto Firmino. Um, I mean, you say 18 goals from that front three, but we've been saying all season they haven't really been firing. <laughs> no, no. I mean, and yeah. that, that in itself is terrifying, isn't it, for the rest of the division? But I still think, um, although it's tight at the moment and Liverpool indeed ended the weekend top of the division, 
I still think that City are a class apart. I still think they're just slightly higher level than, than all of the rest, Liverpool included. Um, you just hope that Liverpool stay with them for as long as possible to make it as competitive mm. as possible. Uh, Chelsea should probably be thrown in there as well because mm. they've surprised everybody with the way they've adapted so far under Maurizio Sarri. Mm. Yeah, management's about, you know, one, the management of expectation, mm. but two, maximisation of, of resources. Now, if you look at Jurgen Klopp specifically, mm. uh, you know, you've been studying that club yeah. quite hard recently, haven't you? Um, what struck me about it was almost like the democracy of the dressing room. Mm -hmm. You know, we had Van Dijk as captain mm -hmm. at the weekend, elected by his peers. Again, that's that's empathetic, quite emotionally is. intelligent management, isn't it? It is. That's a huge part of, of, of how Klopp manages. And, and a story that is regularly told when you look at signings is, is players choosing to, to go in that environment and to, to play in that dressing room. You know, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's fantastic player you've made exactly that choice he's injured Liverpool are doing all this with one of the best players from last season it's easy to forget isn't it it is it is and, and I, I think what Klopp does is he invests in people so if you think about Van Dijk he was willing to wait for him he identified him willing to wait for him you know Van Dijk thought it was the, the move had been denied for him but Liverpool kept the place open Joe Gomez maybe maybe the best player they've had this season Incred he's playing at incredible levels really exciting the way he's developing you know, Gomez spent a lot of last season injured, but the, the place was kept open for him. He's a young person that they that Klopp really believes in. Genie Ronaldo's had an incredible season. Ronaldum, Klopp was stuck with, despite doubts from supporters and people wondering, you know, even when he was signed, 25 million for this bloke from Newcastle. But it is management where he, he really does invest in people and, and believes in them. And, you know, that gets reciprocated through the commitment We've seen their performances. Mm. Liverpool at Arsenal on Saturday. Now, as you said, you know, Dom, you, you saw Arsenal at the weekend. Um, is that the daunting task for Liverpool that it might appear? Or do you think they've got more than enough to deal with it? It'll be a test of Liverpool's defence, which has been outstanding to date this season. But Arsenal's strength is all in their forward line. Mm. Their, their defence is, is a deception. <laughs> and, and it's bizarre to say that after 11 wins on the bounce. Um, but, I mean, I think even Arsenal supporters can, can see that. They're not... And Emery can certainly see that because he talks about this being a process and let's not get too carried away. You know, we're, we're building towards something, but we're nowhere near there yet. Um, they... they I, 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 saw them at, I saw them at Fulham. And we forget that although they ran right after the interval, as they tend to do... They was one all at half-time and they had been exposed a few times. Leicester City could easily have been two or three up mm. at the Emirates at half-time. They should have had a penalty. They scored one. They conceded right on the, on, the, on the interval. And for all the brilliance of Mesut Ozil's second-half performance, um, we shouldn't forget that Arsenal could have been out of that game. Palace actually, in periods, bullied them. I mean, Palace. Mm. Palace don't score goals. They don't score goals, any goals at home. And there were times when they... Arsenal were properly stretched. Mustafi just doesn't look like a doesn't look like a Premier League player, let alone a player who should be representing Germany. Um, and I feel a bit sorry for Rob Holding because I think he's trying his best in there, but he's not got the support around him. Granit Xhaka is no left back, and we know that he's filling in. But but it's it just and to to lose Bellerin as well potentially to a muscle injury. He he didn't come out for the second half. And Lichsteiner is not the same player that he was a few years back. So 
it's, it's an issue. He was a one-season reserve, wasn't he, basically? Getting yeah, the and he, they brought him on. They, it was almost as if they brought him on for one reason alone, and that was to kick Wilfred Zaha yeah. up in the air. And he did it three times, eventually got booked on the third time, and that calmed it all down a bit. But um, he's not... You know, the thought of Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, Firmino, backed up with that vibrant midfield tearing at that Arsenal back line, will be worrying Unai Emery this week. Mm. So it looks like Leno, who's probably got the, the nod as number one now over Peter Cech, he's going to have a busy time, isn't he? He might do, yeah. I mean, he's a very good shot stopper, Leno. He's got, he's got sort of uh, mistakes in him, as they say about goalkeepers. But um, he's, he's a pretty good shot stopper, so if he's active, he, he might do all right. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been really impressed by Emery. I, I underestimated him, I think. And I think the, the, the defensive problems that, that we're talking about actually makes it all the more impressive what he's doing. Yeah. You know, if you can contrast him with Mourinho, who on a weekly basis is complaining about his defence and letting us know that he didn't get to sign who he wants, well, Emery's just got on with it. He's, you know, I mean, that, that penalty that Mustafi gave away was just laughable, absolutely laughable from an international defender. Um, I, 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 I was among a couple of journalists who, who had a bit of time with Raul Sanlehi and, and um, Ben Katishim, uh last week and they were talking about their, their plans for the club and they accept that Arsenal don't have the money that the, the, the other sort of five or four of the big six have got and they said you know we have their to their owner does by the way their owner, the, he does yeah yeah maybe it's not being sort of funnelled through uh, in the football side and they talked about how in order to succeed they have to squeeze every drop from, from every sector well there is a job to be done I think in, in recruitment which was very good this summer but they didn't sign you know, class defenders. They did well in other areas of the pitch. I think the next step is to squeeze every drop from that recruitment department and sign some. some uh, I would, I would say that they're going to be great fun to watch all season because yeah. that the forward line is brilliant, mouthwatering. Over my angles, great, it's yeah. wonderful, and a great predatory, predatory striker. I think Lacazette is yeah. hugely underrated. He had a poor first season, but he's Unai Emery has found a way of integrating both him and Aubameyang into a team. Merzel, uh, when he plays like he played yeah. last week against Leicester. Is sublime, did nothing yeah. this weekend, but you never know, he might be saving himself for Liverpool. Mm. Might be. But I'm, I'm assuming you got closer to the riddle of why they won't offer, or they, why they withdrew the contract offer to Aaron Ramsey. Yeah. And they're now saying, aren't they, look, we're not going to let people run down contracts anymore, which absolutely. sounds a statement of the obvious to me. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, absolutely. And, and to be fair, at the time, you know, they said, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel here. That's just good, good sense not to allow this kind of situation to happen. But it happened so often at Arsenal in the last decade, I guess, of, of Wenger's stewardship. And, and I think Ramsey, I feel slightly sorry for him because I think he's almost being used as an example I think I think they're, they're making a stand on that particular situation, uh, and saying no, we're not going to allow a player to do this or allow this to happen, and then the player to bully us. And it would it would appear that Ramsey would actually quite like to stay, but wants to be paid his market worth, and you can understand that understand that from the player's point of view. He might just be caught in the middle of them making a stand to emphasise their policy change, um, and and you know the the situation that he's in. Because mm. if you look at the contrast of that. The antithesis of it is Paul Pogba at Manchester United, who essentially seems to me to be behaving, you know, as a one-man team in his own mind, at least. So I suppose the question is: Is he sublime or ridiculous, or both? He's a World Cup winner. Yeah. You got to, you got to always have that context in it. Um, it's, it's about, it's about 
management getting the best out of the talent available. And there is clearly a lot of talent there with Paul Pogba. Um, it's, it's, but it, Jose Mourinho's got to find a way of making him more consistent. And that's, that's, that's about management. It's about man management. Mm. I, I think it's fundamental to them whether they like it or not. If when I watch United, one of the things that strikes me is there's a there's a basic lack of football quality in a lot of areas of that team, and then you've got Pogba who's brimming with football quality but maybe not channeling it. The right and he way. brings the best out of Martial to a degree. Yeah, some he? of the passes he played to Martial yesterday were, were extraordinary, and 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 the pair of them have got a, a very good connection off the pitch, on the pitch as well. So whether Josie likes it or not, Pogba's the best footballer he's got. Martial's probably the other best footballer he's got and he's, he's got to use a pair of them mm. um, and that gives Pogba power politically, I guess. Mm. You, you know, you observed Mourinho close up at, mm. at Chelsea. Was there ever a time at Chelsea where he almost acknowledged mediocrity in the way he seems to be doing now at United? Um, look, when it unravelled the second time at Chelsea, he his mood you know, veered from one extreme to the other every week and, you know, he would he would be praising mediocre performances in a desperate attempt to to get some kind of you know positive consistency uh, in the in the team's displays. Um next week he would hammer those same players. Um but he's in a situation now at United where I well, look he's 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 in chief whinge mode in terms of the uh, in terms of the money that he wants to spend more money to lavish upon the whole project. But I don't think he's actually, if, he, if he's having as much say as it's implied in who he's bought, I don't think he's really justified mm. um, having so much say in the future as to what happens next in terms of the transfer market. Um, they are such a stodgy team to watch. And yet, you know, the performance against Everton, arguably, was probably their best home display yeah, of yeah. the season. Um, but even you, even so, there were, there were moments after Sigurdsson's pen penalty where you're wondering whether... But even this is going to go against them. Um, it's quite heartening to see Martial's yeah, revival, definitely. but that doesn't actually reflect particularly well on Jose Mourinho. I don't think. No, in, in a way that matters re-emergence yeah. doesn't as well, does it? But that all has implications, I guess, on Romelu Lukaku as well. Yeah, I mean that's that's another big problem they've got now. Is is Lukaku was, I guess, through the the really difficult times early in the season, he was Jose's kind of spokesman, his reference point, because he invested so heavily in him and. Did, did pretty well at the start last season. And he's, you know, I wouldn't say the dressing room's full of Jose Mourinho allies, but he would be one of them. But I'm not sure they can put him in the team at the moment because he's playing so badly. Mm. Do you think all this will eventually end up costing them David the Gaia? It could do, and there's a subplot there because, you know, same agent as Jose and it all gets very political. Um, it is a strange football club at the moment, a club that lacks continuity and that the best player by a mile, you know, Pogba might be the best footballer, but the best player is David De Gea. The, the fact that the, the one totally prized asset is the one that they're most in danger of leaving, I think, says everything about United. And I think the only way to solve this long term is to have someone running the football department that gets a total grip on this, which will mean a director of football, I guess. And that's not something Jose Mourinho is going to want. So more politics ahead. More politics and a little bit of sort of uh, pantomime. Pep Guardiola talking about a top five now rather than a top six. Now, no prizes <laughs> for guessing who, who he's excluded from the from the six. I think I'll get Spurs. Mm? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
bit of banter, I suppose they yeah. call it, do they? Yeah, they will do. I mean, it's that's quite mischievous, isn't it? But he's in a position where he can say whatever he wants. <laughs> His team's so good. Um, yeah, they won't. They won't. They won't go down particularly well on the red red half of Manchester. But uh... is there some some basis to it, though? Do you think? Well, they're, well, they're playing a game of catch up, United, aren't they? And and I mean, you wouldn't look at them and think they're a team that's a going to challenge for the title. Certainly not going to challenge for the title this season. But but because the because the teams above them have actually done pretty well. I mean, we've, we've you know, Spurs, we talked earlier about there not being very many surprises. Spurs did lose at Watford, who are one of the resurgent teams in that sort of middle group. But Spurs have still had their best start to a Premier League season. Mm. Arsenal, OK, they haven't, whenever they come up against someone good, like the City and Chelsea in the first few weeks, they, they, they lost those games, but they, they won a long sequence subsequently. United are playing catch-up to these guys. Um, Chelsea... Under Sarri have been a, a bit of a revelation again, as they tend to do every other year under different management usually. Um, but that's what United are trying to... They're not, they're not really trying to catch City. They're trying to catch the fourth best team in that group and they're all playing quite well. And it's interesting, they're at Bournemouth uh, at the weekend. When you look at that fixture, you immediately think about Eddie Howe, yeah. job he's doing there. Does that deserve greater recognition? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, part of the madness of, of the game at the moment is that if, if he was doing that in Germany or Spain, then every top club in Britain, in England, would want to have him as manager. But, of course, there's this glass ceiling in the Premier League where, you know, oh, Eddie Howe at Bournemouth's almost taken for granted. I mean, that he's built the club over, long, over the long term. He's instilled his values in the football club. That's expressed in the way they they play, the commitment they give him, the, the, the energy they'll they'll hit United with will will be a problem for United. Um, and he is still improving as a manager. I think he this is the best start of the season he's had. I think Bournemouth have kicked on. The recruitment hasn't always been no. their strongest suit. I think has been better. Um, there's younger players like like um, David uh, Brooks, for instance. Brooks Fraser that um, are, are starting to really come into their own. It's a team, you know. It's it's so impressive that after six years, uh, he's he's still taking the club in a, in an upward direction, still squeezing different bits here and there. And mm. um, it was an interesting stat on Saturday when they played Fulham, who basically you know thrown a hundred million pounds at the wall and see what sticks. Yet that that Bournemouth team, seven of that team, had been in the starting lineup when they'd last played Fulham, which was two or three years mm. beforehand. So, mm. as to your point, mm. it's it's a gradual process. But the evolution of Bournemouth's football team um, took huge steps forward this summer when, when the recruitment worked. Mm. Jefferson Lerma has made a massive difference. Yeah. That partnership with Lewis Cook in central midfield is abrasive, it's awkward, it's horrible to contend with. Um, David Brooks has come in and hit the ground running and not many of... Eddie Howe's bigger signings in the past had done that, which is why he's had to rely upon you know the bulk of a team that really excelled in League One yeah. and through the Championship. Uh, they are a team that feels progressive now, and they will give United a horribly awkward afternoon because I mean, we talk about we talk about how teams press. They they are all over them. I mean, they're they're hands on. They're 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 horrible. They're not. You know, they score some beautiful goals and beautiful teamwork goals, but they've got a real nasty side to them as well, which is admirable for a team of that, um, a club of that size. Mm. They're probably now the biggest club on the south coast, aren't they? <laughs> Southampton, you know, they're, they're, they've got City. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hughes going back to the Etihad. 
Um, the signs aren't great there, are they? He was berating the home fans. Um, there is this element that they almost that they were lucky to get away with it last season, mm. and they're just sliding straight back into relegation troubles again. Yeah, there's a bit of an echo at Southampton for me of Stoke a few years ago, where the club had come through a very successful period and then started to try and change, but then through changing, lose its set of values, its identity. Supporters who aren't quite sure what they're looking for. I'm not sure what Southampton supporters, and I don't blame them for it, but feel their club should be achieving. Um, you know, Claude Puel, they just didn't take to him at all, but he finished eighth or something like that. Um, Mark Hughes, they, they struggled to establish a bond with, with the fans straight away. And, and there's a sort of kind of stale air about it all, stale on the pitch as well, I think. You know, you don't nothing particularly exciting emerging at Southampton. The, the better players are still the ones that you know they've had for a while and just are, are, are declining. Um, they may stay in the league because other teams are so bad, but it looks like a pretty miserable season and, of course, they're not scoring any goals at the moment. Mm. Talking of teams that are pretty bad at the moment, what about Newcastle? Can you see any logical way that uh, Rafa Benitez will be there this time next year? Um, no, not really. Um, I, I think he'll go when his contract expires. Um, I think he's probably... I think that he can only work with that regime for as long as you can. And as much as he's fated and adored by the mm. supporters, it must be horribly grating for him on a daily basis to be to be working in an environment that he, he can see the potential, he can see what he wants to do, but can't actually do it. Mm. Um, they're in for a slog of a season as well, but I still think they've... Well, weirdly, I still think Benitez will make the difference to, to them. Um, and he'll get them playing in a similar vein to last year. Um, I think tenth was tenth was obviously flattering last season in the, but it was a great achievement as well. Um, but I think they'll actually hopefully use that result at Southampton, which was a poor performance, but it was a point, um, a clean sheet, and maybe use that as a springboard to, to to better things. Again, like all those teams down the bottom, apart from Fulham. Um, goal scoring is the issue. Yeah. Talking of managers who aren't happy, um, Mauricio Pochettino has come out and basically said it is, this is the unhappiest he's been at Spurs. That's a big warning sign, isn't it? It's a huge warning sign. Um, I mean, they might you know, Real Madrid might be making an appointment today, so that might ease a few worries for Spurs in terms of Pochettino. But you can't Conte, of course. Yeah, Conte. Conte yeah, you, you can't you can't blame him. I mean. If you start with the stadium, you know, I think it's terrible for supporters that they've kind of been led to believe they've been in the new White Hart Lane and then they're at Wembley. But it must be very unsettling for the manager and players as well. And it kind of denies you your home advantage. Then there's the having to sit and watch the investment taking place at other clubs. And, and that's not possible at Spurs. Has, has never really been possible, but less possible now because of the stadium. And there's a sense that they're relying on Pochettino's, you know, work ethic and, and skills to make up for the other differences between them and the top five or six. And if you're the guy being asked to go to the well all the time, I think, of course, you're going to be unhappy. You've got to keep motivating the players who have overachieved for him. Um, he, he does seem to be in a bit of an existential crisis point at this moment, and you can't blame him. He's done so much for Spurs. And I guess when you do that, you want 
the people behind you to, to keep pushing you forward, but he's not getting that at the moment. Mm. Do you think Daniel Levy's been very lucky to, to avoid pretty widespread criticism for the way, you know, the fiasco, let's put it like that, mm. of, of the new stadium not being ready on time. They're playing at Wembley on a pitch which yeah. looks appalling. Yeah. Um, and that's because of overuse. Well, Spurs have been you know, overusing it. Yeah, although there was a <laughs> fairly unique situation with the NFL game, yeah. um, which was bizarre to be doing that 24 hours before such a, mm. a big key yeah. Premier League match. But there you go. Um, it's interesting on, on Levy. I think his, his, the, 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 Tottenham's biggest problem has been they, they probably weren't very realistic with the time scale originally. I think people might have accepted if they'd done say, as Chelsea proposed mm. to do, and say, well, look, we're not going to be able to play at home for three years. I mean, Chelsea, mm. Tottenham could have been two years. Two seasons will be, mm. we won't be at White Hart Lane. So, so, but bear with us and we'll, when we get there, you'll, you'll love it. I suspect in, in three years' time, when we look back, and Tottenham have got one of the best stadiums in, in Europe, um, we won't worry so much about this little disconcerting period. But, I mean, I know, I know Tottenham season ticket holders have, have now received their season ticket for the mm. new ground, which they're not right. going to be able to use until next year at the earliest. And they're sort of drifting up to White Hart Lane to, to use the, the marvellous new shop that's open, but there isn't <laughs> actually a stadium mm. worthy of use yet attached to that. But it's just a matter of patience. I mean, let's let's look more long-term. Daniel Levy and, and Tottenham Hotspur will have done created an amazing stadium yeah. in a one of London's most deprived areas. They've stayed local we were talking about community earlier, they've done that. So let's see where we are in three years' time and, and see how Tottenham are enjoying that. And you know, we live in a world where it shows your medals. Do they need to win something? So for instance, should they prioritise the League Cup? You know, they've got West Ham yeah. in midweek. Champions League's not looking great, is it? Champions, no, and that advert's not looking great, is it? About the only <laughs> place to see Champions League football in London. Um, yeah, I, I, I've thought for a while they need to, um, you know, this whole thing that you need to win something gets misinterpreted. They don't need to win something to prove that Poch is doing a great job, that they've got good players. But they need to win something to help themselves develop. That's that's the key thing. I think it'd be enormously valuable for those players to have, you know, to seal what they've been through with some kind of, you know, silverware to show from it, um, and at, at least at least go to a final and go close. You know, the fact that Wande Ramos is. Still the last trophy-winning Spurs manager is bizarre when you think how good Spurs have been since then, but but there it is. So, yeah, that, that, for them, that's probably the most important competition at the moment. Mm. Yeah, as we said earlier, Chelsea is a club that is very familiar to you, Dom. Um, is there a different mood there this year? And, and if so, is that down to just down to Sarri? Well, look, there is a different mood, and that is because of Sarri, but... I, I, I'm sort of loath to get too carried away because we did. There was a different mood at Chelsea when Antonio Conte was in his first mm. six months in charge or year in charge, and there was a different mood at Chelsea when Jose Mourinho was winning the title there in 2014-15. Um, they are a squad that seem to respond well and need change now and again, um, and that, I'm including people like Eden Hazard in that mix as well. It's, it's all looking very, very rosy at the moment and, and very promising. And, and he's obviously doing an excellent job. Um, they've bought into the philosophy in terms of his style of play. They're winning games. They're getting 
you know, they're getting evidence that, that the style of play is working every time they go out onto the pitch. You get players who are revived, like Ross Barkley. It's, it's great to see him him doing so well of, of late. But even some of the older guys who had sort of gone into a lull, people like William, yeah. um, Pedro even, um, you, could, you could argue Hazard at times. Um, they just, they're just benefiting from a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh way of working down the training ground. I think they'll... I think they'll do really well under Sarri, and I th there's no reason to think this is suddenly going to become be derailed mid-season. Uh, this feels like a, a season when, when Chelsea will challenge to a certain point where they can, you know, where they can maintain City's levels remains to be seen. But, but they're moving in the right direction. I actually think that the test of Chelsea is next season. I mean, hmm. when you know what's happened with Hazard by then, hmm. does does Conte turning up around would you actually hmm. benefit Chelsea? Um, You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? you? you yeah, you really would. <laughs> um, you know, but how how do they react second time round to to Sarri? I mean, Sarri will yeah. keep demanding more. He's not he's not he's not going to take the foot off the gas. I mean, Conte was demanding and demanding and demanding, and eventually the, the players just said, "Oh, enough! Can't do this anymore." Are they going to feel the same under Sarri yeah. next year? I mean, I mean, I mentioned earlier how I think we're in an age where the trick for football clubs or managers is to is to make players feel that they're enjoying themselves. That there's a sense of meaning in this industry, and Sarri's definitely done that. I saw Tony Rudiger last week, and, and he said, you know, at the end of the time under Conte, he was asking himself, where where is the fun? Now Sarri's brought that back, but as Dom alludes to, you've got to keep that going. So are they still going to be enjoying it next year? I don't know. I mean, Sarri seems like a great guy to me. Seems like the kind of bloke you'd want to play for. But I don't know enough to to, to know whether they're still going to be in this kind of mood next season. I don't get the impression we're going to get the same level of political intrigue between no. Sarri and the hierarchy. No. Um, which will benefit them. But then Chelsea are a club that expects to win things. And if, you know, City and Liverpool make a clean sweep of domestic. Yeah. I mean, there is a possibility that there is impatience there as well, possibly further down the line. Yeah. And, and talking about impatience, you know, you've got Ruben Loftus-Cheek, mm -hmm. um, hat-trick in Europe, goal-scoring cameo on Sunday. Um, you've got Jadon Sancho, four goals in his last three games for, for Dortmund. Compare and contrast. Yeah, and, and what, Sancho's four years younger than Loftus-Cheek, three mm. years younger. Um, he will become the poster boy for a lot of young players, top young players. I think it, it's already having impact at City, who have got a question over uh, Diaz, brilliant young Spaniard. I think he, he's wanted... There's a bit of sabre-rattling about Phil Foden's contract Phil, as well. Foden is, 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 is being looked at by some really big clubs in Europe. Uh, but he's a City boy and I'd expect him to sign this contract. But there's, there's you know, there's interest there. Um, I, I think if Loftus-Cheek... Come, he could still, you know, he, he's a he's a great talent, and Sarri's starting to use him. So he he could cease to be the cautionary tale, but at the moment he is a kind of cautionary tale. This kid that what Mourinho said four years ago mm. that if he's not in the first team, he doesn't become a top England player. Then it's, you know, there's something wrong with the game, um, and it looks it has looked for three or four years, despite his talent that that might happen. You have to play as a kid. You just have to play, and and Sancho is is demonstrating that. And, you know, in another way, Loftus-Cheek has, has been demonstrating that too. Mm. But Ruben isn't, Ruben isn't the kid. I mean, he's 20, no. 22. Yeah. And he's, uh, it's, as, as great as that last week has been, that has to be the norm. Yeah. It can't be that in January he's only, he's still just having 10 minutes off the bench. Mm -hmm. Because there will be, I mean, I got the impression that 
you know, that we were reaching breaking point and that, that there's a contractual situation there as well. He won't be signing a new long-term deal if he goes out on loan because he just he wants he wants permanent. He wants, he wants a career. He, he wants, wants a career. career. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I end this? My, um, you know, almost going back to Saturday, which was a truly terrible day, mm. um, which began with um, Glenn Hoddle collapsing in in the BT Sports studios, being saved. You know, by the prompt action of a, uh, a sound engineer. Um, again, there was another outpouring of emotion mm. at an event like that. Let's spend a couple of minutes just appreciating how good Glenn One mm. was as a player mm. and maybe how unfulfilled he was as a coach. Yeah, I mean, the thing I th Glenn Hall is one of those figures in your life that, that, that you know, as, as a football fan, is, is, is large and constant because you caught your imagination as a kid. And I, I grew up in the northeast of Scotland, miles from, from London and all that sort of stuff. Um, but even as a, as a Scot, Glenn Hoddle was someone, you know, Stevie Archibald's teammate and you saw him in 81 Cup Final and that sort of stuff. But he was something a bit special about him. He played the game a little bit differently. He had this talent. We used to go out in the park and try Glenn Hoddle volleys. You know, it, it, was, it was that kind of bloke you were watching. Um, and I think, you know, him being different is what sort of defines Glenn Hoddle. He was a different kind of coach, thought differently, um, different tactically. Um, he was maybe ahead of his time, but he tried to bring a different style of football to the, the English national team. A bit different as a pundit as well. Again, a deep thinker, um, underrated as a pundit. Very good columns in the Mail on Sunday where you get the benefit of that, that sort of football mind. Um, and just, yeah... I, his own man, a bit of a one-off. You know, I remember watching him as a, as a sweeper at Chelsea mm. towards the end. I mean, he was fabulous in that role as well. Mm. We, we, you know, everyone wanted to be Glenn Hoddle when, when, when you were a kid, even a, even a Scot. Yeah, my favourite memory was watching him uh, score what's become a bit of a fable goal at Watford mm. in that old yeah. rickety wooden press box where you had a perfect um, view of him chipping... Uh, Steve Sherwood, who was then the Watford goalkeeper, just going backwards and backwards and thinking, <laughs> I'm not going to get it. It's little memories like that, little vignettes, which actually make a player, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad. I mean, that's one of the joys of social media. That, that if you, if you, you trace through Twitter now, search for Glenn Hoddle, all these goals are suddenly appearing. The, the Oxford United goal where he, he waltzes through the entire defence <laughs> and then just dummies the goalkeeper and, and starts it into an empty net. Um, Gorgeous. I was talking to um, David Pleat about about Glenn um, yesterday, and it was about the way to pass and the, the spin that he put on on the ball, the the, the through passes that were perfect. They were just they were just cushion off the turf, ideal for the striker to run onto. Just um, a, a very 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 special talent and an unusual talent for for England to really produce. Um, so what, which is presumably why we cherish him so much. Interesting on the coaching side, I, I do want, I know he's a brilliant pundit, a good pundit, but I wonder whether communication was actually an issue mm -hmm. for him as a manager and a coach. Um, for all that he had amazing ideas and was such a great player, it must have been difficult for them to translate those ideas and mm -hmm. transpose them onto players who didn't have the same amount of ability that he did as a, as a player, but but one of the greats. And it's, 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 it's wonderful that the, the news is encouraging on his recovery. Mm -hmm. Get well soon, Glenn. Football's a rough and tumble world, but you're loved. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>